So there was a survey that Pew put out this week that they do every year just to track movements in Americans' ideas. The Pew Foundation does lots of different surveys, but a lot of them center around religion, Christianity specifically, American culture and society. And for the first time in American history in this poll, it is now true that the majority of Americans say we don't need God in order to be good. 56% of Americans in this latest poll from just the results just released this week, 56% of American adults consider belief in God unnecessary for morality. Of that 56%, that is actually, that's all Americans, but 45% of those are religiously affiliated. People who say, I go to church regularly. 45% of American Christians who go to church regularly, not the people who would just say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but, but aren't. But 45% of American Christians would say that God is not necessary for morality. White mainline Protestants are the most liberal in that. By that I mean the Episcopals, Lutherans, uh, Presbyterians, uh, 63% of white mainline Protestants say God is not necessary. Believing in God is not necessary to be a good person. White evangelical Protestants, evangelical means people who take the word of God as literal truth, are still at 35%. Black Protestants are the most conservative. Only 24% of black Protestants would say that God is unnecessary for people to be good. And these are, in every category, they are the highest numbers ever in America. So you all, it is not a surprise, I know, at all to you that American culture is shifting away from Christianity, away from what America historically has been. Uh, But I want to examine that question this morning in light of our series on faith and current events, and is it possible for us to be good, uh, truly good, uh, without being a believer or a disciple or even a follower of, of God? I think that answer, ans- that question answers itself, probably to most people in this room, but let's take an honest look at it. Is it possible to be good without God? Are we moral creatures intrinsically without God? Well, the current news events and news cycles can show us that, that uh, human beings are, are not good. Uh, the current poster boy for Dirtbags Anonymous is uh, Harvey Weinstein. And if you don't know who he is, thank God. But I suppose most of you do. I mean, he's the, he's the poster boy for sleazebag. A Hollywood mogul, the producer of all Miramax movies, and we find out that it's n- now that uh, if you wanted to get, if you're a female and you wanted to get a part in his movie, you had to uh, submit to his 
sexual advances, and there are over 30 major A-list Hollywood women who say that he either raped them or assaulted them, not even counting the ones who said that he just propositioned them. I mean, the, and the details are just beyond grotesque of who this guy is and how he was behaving. He never claimed to be a Christian, not at all, but he is absolutely a hypocrite because there's a picture of him from January marching in the Women's March with one of those pink hats on for women's rights while he is the antithesis of women's rights and everything that feminists are notorious for fighting against. But he's not the only dirtbag in the news this week. Republican representative from Pennsylvania, Tim Murphy, who is a 100% on pro-life, anti-abortion issues, was having an affair with a girl half his age and got her pregnant, and she sent all of his texts to the media, and in the in exchange, when she got pregnant, he was asking her to have an abortion, to cover it up. And she called him on his hypocrisy, because the day after he sent her a text demanding that she have an abortion so that his wife wouldn't find out that he was having an affair, his office issued a press release in on some pro-life topic and how we're going to fight against abortion. And I mean, the hypocrisy is jaw-dropping. And so the world's media is very gleefully celebrating his downfall. They're being drug, kicking and screaming to uh, expose Henry Weinstein, but it's happening whether they like it or not. He's one of their guys, so they don't like it. But, boy, they're real happy to expose Tim Murphy. And it also came out just this week in the very far corners of academic theology that I know all of you haunt every day. You're trolling the Internet for, for the scholarly halls of uh, theological seminaries and so on. But there's a, a guy named Karl Barth, who, if you look him up on Wikipedia, he will, it will say he is the greatest theologian of the 20th century. He died in 1968, but he's back in the news because of his personal life. He is not a pastor but, or even a preacher. He's a seminary professor and a, a prolific author. And if you're in the right denomination, Karl Barth is a hero of heroes. I mean, he is, he is the guy that the Reformed people look up to like no one else. He is an authority of all authorities. And it has been known since his death, and maybe even before, that he was having an affair with his secretary. But it, the letters between the two of them were released this week and published in a journal called Theology Today that I'm sure you all subscribe to. Uh, and it is it was just shocked the world that this man who is a giant of intellect and genius and godly theology, he really did bring the world a lot of truth. For those of you who are Chris Valentin fans, Chris Valentin did not create the idea of truth's intention. It's actually Karl Barth came up with what he called the dialectic, but that's not a word that Chris Valentin's people use every day. So uh, it, he's changed the vocabulary, but uh, it was Karl Barth that came came up with this 
theology that Chris Vallotton teaches. He, he is a good and godly man, but it was known that he had had an affair, but what we didn't know until this week is that after he told his wife he was having an affair with his secretary and she didn't leave him, he moved his secretary into their house. He brought his mistress into his wife's house when she knows they're having an affair. And in the letters that have now been published back and forth between he and his mistress, who, by the way, was the woman he wanted to marry, but his parents refused to let him marry her and forced, her to marry the, forced him to marry this other woman, but he never gave up on the original girl. It's just a soap opera and a really sad story. But in his letters, he justifies it before God. He says, it's shocking the excuses and the justifications that he wraps this in, in theology. He wraps his sin in, this is God's will. God meant this for us. We are special. We are excused for what we're doing because this is God's will. So it's been quite a week or two for sleazeballs. Back to my original question. Are we moral creatures? Are is right and wrong intrinsically defined by us or by God? Can we be good without God? I think that's the wrong question because it's obvious we can't even be good with God. Harvey Weinstein is completely godless. Tim Murphy, at least publicly, espouses Christian morality. I don't know whether he claimed to be a believer or not, but Karl Barth is the greatest, quote-unquote, the greatest theologian in the 20th century. And he is brazenly hard-hearted and unrepentant about his adultery. While writing what is considered the most influential and genius theology of the last hundred years. He's living in adultery in his own house. We can't even be good with God. But let's ask the question, can we be good, are humans moral creatures outside of God? It is actually a Christian doctrine that human beings are moral without God. That's contrary to most of the preaching you've heard, but it is scriptural, and here it is. Romans 1, 19-23. Humanity knows the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. They began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Jumping to Romans chapter 2, Paul says this again. Even those who do not have God's law, written law, show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts, for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. This is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. Paul says we all have right and wrong written in what we call our conscience. 
that is a Bible word. It's not what Paul uses here, but the Bible does speak of our conscience, and Paul says it is God's right and wrong law are written on our hearts, and no one is without excuse. At the very least, our conscience bothers us when we do something to somebody else that we know would hurt us. At the very least, it's that. So Paul is in a theological dissertation here about how God is going to judge the people who have never heard the Bible or never knew the Old Testament law. And that is a whole different topic than what I want to address today. All I want to point out here is that Paul shows that we are moral creatures, we're created in God's image, and we have no excuse, we do know what is right and wrong. But dang, if we aren't good at wrapping it in a bunch of justifications and excuses, are we not? So we can easily pick apart scumbags that cheat on their wives and molest little teenage girls that want to be Hollywood starlets. But in right in the middle of this dissertation where Paul says nobody is without excuse, he turns it around right on us. And I set that up on purpose. I was using the word dirtbags and sleazeballs for you all to agree with me. And then we'll, I'm going to do what Paul did. And here's what Paul says also from Romans chapter 2, 1 to 4. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say that they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God, in his justice, will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? I would hope I would never do what Harvey Weinstein has done. But I can't say that it would be impossible for me to do. In fact, the moment I say about anyone else's sin, I would never do that. Paul says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The moment I say I would never do that, that is, becomes the very sin I am most susceptible to because my guard is not up toward that sin because I think it's beneath me. I don't need to worry about that one. I don't know how I would behave if I had godless parents and I had that much money and power. I don't know. As I told you guys before, most of us cannot judge men who've committed adultery because we haven't been given the opportunity. There isn't a woman throwing herself at us. We do not know. Hopefully you don't. Some of you might. But a lot of us have never been given the opportunity, so we cannot judge any man who does. I am not saying we don't condemn it and say that it's wrong. I'm saying we don't condemn these individual men personally. Because but for the grace of God, there go I. So Paul here says two things. He says we are utterly without excuse no one can say i didn't know what right and wrong was and that's not just the bad people it's all of us in romans 3 he goes on to say this there is none righteous no not one 
There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's verses 10 and 12 and 23. If you're like me, you may read those verses and you think, I've done some good things. I've tried to seek God. But there isn't a single one of us who has done it successfully. In the area of sexual sin, Harvey Weinstein is light years ahead of me. But I am not guiltless of sexual sin. Neither are most of you. So the answer to the question is, are we moral? Can we know right and wrong without God? Yes. Can we do it? Absolutely not. It is impossible to be good, even knowing what God has commanded. We see that every individual person has a conscience, and humanity collectively understands some morality of right and wrong. But we each and all are complete failures to live up to our own standards, much less God's. Weinstein and Murphy can't even live up to the world's standards, and those are pretty low. And in a sad irony, the harder we try to be good or impressive or moral, the slimier our self-righteousness gets. To the point that Weinstein is bribing many women... And he is so brazenly, stupidly arrogant, he marches in a women's rights movement with a pink hat on while grotesquely lusting after the women he's marching with. He is the definition of everything they're marching against. And he walks right out in the middle of them and marches with them. The more we try to put on that we've got it together and right, the slimier our self-righteousness gets. And Jesus pointed this out in a parable in Luke chapter 18. He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. That's just amazing language. Jesus said he prayed to himself. Because this is not a prayer that God is listening to at all. He's just with himself. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So the Pharisee comes to God and gives God a list of all the good things that he is and all the bad things that he isn't. Better be real careful. Because a lot of times that's us. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And we see that coming true in these men's lives this week. God is making sure that they are humbled. So Jesus tells us here that our goal is not ever to be good people. Our goal is to know that we are not good people and to throw ourselves at his mercy. That is Christianity. We are not here to be good people. 
we are here to learn how not good we are. In Philippians chapter 3, this is from the Living Bible. If anyone ever had reason to hope that he could be good himself, it would be I. This is Paul writing about himself. If anyone could be saved by what they are, certainly I could. For I was an obedient follower of the law from birth. I was a real Jew if there ever was one. What's more, I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to every Jewish law and custom. And sincere, yes, so much so that I greatly persecuted the church and I tried to obey every Jewish rule and regulation right down to the very last point. But all these things that I once thought were very worthwhile, now I've thrown them all away so, so that I can put my trust and hope in Christ alone. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I have put aside all else, counting it worth less than nothing, in order that I can have Christ and become one with him, no longer counting on being saved by being good enough or by obeying God's laws, but by trusting Christ to save me. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith, counting on Christ alone. Now I have given up everything else. I have found it to be the only way to really know Christ and to experience the mighty power that brought him back to life again and to find out what it means to suffer and to die with him. If there was anybody who was a good person, it was Paul. And he thought he had God, but he didn't have the Holy Spirit. He didn't have faith in Jesus. Our goal is not to be good people. It is to know Jesus and to obey him. Our goal is not to be good people. It is to be disciples of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul says, I am determined to not know anything except Jesus Christ crucified. And in Galatians 6.14, he says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I found out yesterday on the radio that Billy Graham is going to be 99 in a week or two. Uh, He's still kicking. He's not preaching, not traveling, but he's still kicking. I found out that as he grew older and older in his walk with the Lord, and I pay attention to old people. I pay attention to what they think and why their priorities change and why they think is valuable in life. This verse, Galatians 6.14, became his favorite verse. And he has it written and posted on every wall in his house. One of the greatest men to ever live and serve the Lord reminds himself on every wall in his house, every moment of every day, may I never boast about anything except that Jesus died for me. We better pay attention to that. I had one of the saddest statements ever made to me. It was a young lady who was an Eastern student years ago, came to our church while she was here in town. And we were, I don't know, remember the context, but we were talking about her life and story and how she came to Jesus and so on. And, and I asked her about her parents. And they lived on the west side of the state, I think. And she said, well, I would say they are believers but not disciples. And I think that's the most heartbreaking description of any so-called Christian that could ever be made. To know and believe that God is real and that Jesus is my Savior, but not actually follow Him. She said, I would say they are believers, but not really disciples. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. The word disciple 
is the root word in the root word discipline. Disciple and discipline are the same word. To be a disciple of Jesus does not mean that I am trying to be a religious person or a good person. It means I allow Jesus to discipline me. In the same way I let my coach discipline me or my drill sergeant or my dad or the sensei at the dojo who's got mastered that martial art and I want to learn what the master has so I submit to his or her discipline. I become a disciple. In the time of Jesus, there would be rabbis that would come and they would be teachers and people would become their disciples. They would follow this particular teacher's teaching. They would come under his discipline. It's how all of the Eastern cultures worked with martial arts and or meditation in Buddhism and Hinduism. People follow a guru and they come under and they follow the disciplines of that leader, of that teacher. You're right? Whatever that may be. To be a disciple of Jesus means that I let Jesus teach me, but that teaching is not necessarily only what I am doing right now, just passing information on to you. It is I come under the discipline of Jesus Christ. My coach in football is teaching me, but he isn't lecturing. He is forcing me to do things I don't want to do. Hello? Hello? How many, how many times have you had a coach you got mad at? I mean, really angry. When he made me run the 17th, 200-yard back and forth down the field because like, somebody else messed up. You know, I had quite an attitude sometimes in practice. I loved playing. I hated practice. Drill sergeants, those of you in the military, you know. Seems like they're being mean, excessive, cruel, on purpose. But it's because they're wanting to save your life. When the bullets are flying and the blood is pouring and the screams are screaming, you know what to do. To come be a disciple of Jesus does not mean to be a good person. It means to allow him to discipline us. And he says in Revelation, I discipline those I love. So be eager to repent. That's what he says. I discipline those I love. In Hebrews 12, it says God disciplines his children like a father disciplines his son. The scariest thing in life ought to be if God is not disciplining you. So two weeks ago, I talked about God's discipline and the spanking spoon. I talked about me with my kids and how I have authority to discipline my kids, I have no authority to discipline your kids. And we connected that with God in the question of why does God allow sin and tragedy and and these evil things like we were talking about the Las Vegas shooting that week. If you weren't here two weeks ago, you can go online to our church website or our Facebook page and find that and listen to it. Please do. But I said God, he has all power, but he does not have all authority because he waits for us to give him authority. And so he is not in control of world events and individual people's lives. And if some evil man hatches a scheme to kill 58 people in 10 minutes, then then that's what happens. And God is working all things for good for his children. But 
and he's directing history, but he is not in control of other people's lives unless we give him control. And I, I, I use this as an example. And what I want to say this morning is the, is the opposite in the positive direction, that to become a child of God is to submit to God's spanking spoon. That's what it means. To invite the discipline of God into our lives. That's what it means to surrender. That's what it means to repent. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be a child of God is to have a father. And Hebrews 12 says, a father disciplines the children that he loves. And it makes it very clear in Hebrews 12, our earthly dads did not do it right. So lots of us have, have completely missed out on what discipline is and your dad or, and your mom were not, did not discipline you. So you're having issues. Others of you have issues because mom and dad were way too over the top abusive and it wasn't discipline, it was abuse. So pretty much we all, unless you had really truly godly parents, which is a few of you, uh, we all have this uh, fear of discipline because it means getting yelled at, cussed at, slapped around, tormented, or Discipline is this thing that never happened to me, so I'm kind of scared of it because I don't want it. <laughs> Some of us are used to a lot of it, and others of you didn't get anything. Why in the world would we volunteer to come under the discipline of God? Because of faith. Because we have faith that He is good. That He loves us. That whatever He does even when Hebrews 12 says it's painful, whatever he does is for our good. It's also humility to admit that I need it. I need a father that disciplines me. And it's also faith in a coming judgment that is so terrible, I definitely don't want to be a part of it. And Jesus said, if I would judge myself now, I will not be judged then. No amens on that one, huh? Jesus said, if you judge yourself now, you will not be judged later. So, again, by faith, because it hasn't happened yet, we can read about it in the book, but it hasn't happened yet. And there's lots of injustice in the world that needs to be set right. But there is a day coming when Jesus is going to return. And it will be very, very unimaginably terrible for the people who have rebelled against him and rejected him. And I don't want to be one of those. So by faith now, I submit to his discipline because I know that he is teaching me right and wrong. He is saving me from what's coming. So it is faith that we would choose to receive the discipline of God. We know the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's talking about at the end of the last day, the day of judgment when he returns. That will be by force. I choose to do it now. In love and in faith, I choose to bow my knee and make my confession and swear my allegiance now. Because those that bend their knee by force will not be received into the kingdom. So it is in the discipline of God where there's safety from sin 
and destruction and hypocrisy and judgment. And Hebrews 12 finishes with this. God disciplines us for our own good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God disciplines us for our good, and it produces in us a harvest of righteousness and peace. How can we accomplish being good? By letting God discipline us. It is the only way. Because the world rejects God and rejects his definition of right and wrong, they do whatever they can get away with. And everybody wants to look good, but Weinstein's bribing people so that he can keep his power and his reputation. I mean, it just the, the, the further this story goes, just the more grotesque it gets. But he's still trying to look good. Even now, he's trying to look like a good guy and make all kinds of excuses for what he's done. The people in the world, they reject God, they reject his definition of right and wrong, but they still want to think of themselves as good people. Then there's people like Representative Murphy who align themselves with righteousness, but behind the scenes, they're living a different life. And then there's people like Karl Barth who know the word of God and know God and they know what he has commanded and they know what he has said is coming. So even knowledge of God does not produce righteousness when we wrap our sins in excuses and justifications and don't submit to the discipline of God. What is, what's the discipline of God look like in his life? It means keeping his vows to his wife even if he really does care for this other woman. You discipline yourself and you stay true to your wife. Because God said so. No other reason. Hopefully there would be other reasons, but even if that's the only reason, you discipline yourself. Let God discipline you to obey God. Even when there is no other reason to do so. It's the discipline of God is the only thing that is going to produce righteousness in us. So back to my original question. Are human beings moral creatures? Can we know good and bad, right and wrong without God? Yes, we can because he created a conscience in our heart. But we still need the word of God to define it correctly because nobody, nobody, nobody but Jesus came up with, actually the highest morality is for you to die for somebody else. Nobody thought that. No, nobody's like, hey, I think it would be a really good idea if I died for you. So there is morality, there is truth, there is ethic that is even higher than our conscience, and Jesus' life proves that. But even when we know it, we don't get it right. Even when we know it really well, we don't get it right. We absolutely must invite the discipline of God. We must not just volunteer for it, but David says, I long for your judgments. Psalm 119. 
I'll bet he says it 10 or 12 times in Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, you know. I'll bet he says it. I didn't go back and count. I'm just thinking of this off the top of my head. It's probably 10 or 12 times. He says something along the lines of, my soul pants for your judgments. Whoa. No wonder he's the guy after God's own heart. God, please correct me. All through the book of Proverbs, his son, who had his father's heart, says it's the fool who rejects correction. The wise person wants to be corrected. We've got to invite the discipline of God into our lives. Long for it. Not wanting a good reputation, not wanting to be known as a good person or a successful Christian, but to really know Jesus. To make him truly our master who disciplines us and teaches us his ways. So I invite you this morning, if you have not done that, we would love to introduce you to Jesus. Come, confess that even though you've been honestly trying, you have not been successful to be a good person. And you have royally messed up, as all of us have. There's nobody going to be singled out at all. But we have to start with that. We have to confess. I have been trying. I have really messed up. I need saved. That's got to be the start. And then we turn around from the way we've been living and we follow God. We allow him to teach us, to lead us, and to discipline us as a loving father to lead us into truth and righteousness. That's where peace is found. That's where success, it is the only place where success is going to be found. It isn't in being rich and powerful or influential or even a great theologian. It is in bowing the knees, bowing our heart to the discipline of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we trust you to train us and to discipline us, to teach us so that we will not fall into destruction. Lord, we honestly do not want to be hypocrites. We know that no one is perfect, but we do not want to be a hypocrite who says one thing and then does another. Lord, we honestly want to follow you. We want to obey you. We want to be your disciples, not just believers. So we invite your discipline this morning so that our lives are not destroyed by sin, so that we don't hurt those around us, so that we're not so wrapped up in justifications and lies that we don't even admit our sin. Lord, we do not ever want to be praying the prayers of that Pharisee about how good we are. We want to be praying, beating our breast and asking for mercy. Because you said that's where true justification is. That's the place of forgiveness. Lord, we bow our knees to you. We submit our heart to you. We say, yes, sir, to whatever you say. Thank you for loving us enough to push us to say and do the hard things, to not enable our excuses. Thank you, Lord, that you will keep our hearts soft and warm and not cold and hard. Lord, we invite your discipline in our lives. We invite your correction because you are wise 
and you are gentle and you are good and you are faithful. Even in you, when you do things that hurt, we know it's for our good and we trust you. We have faith that you are faithful. We know you are good and right in everything you do and everything you don't do. We want to be your beloved children. So we look for your discipline. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for keeping us out of hypocrisy and lies and the horrible destruction of sin. Thank you for the warnings that we see in these men's lives. Lord, we do not judge them. Only you may do that. But we thank you for the stern warning of the destructive power of lies and sin that we would not go there. Thank you for receiving our repentance with a smile. Thank you for your excitement to lead us, to shepherd us, to train us, to discipline us for our good and for our freedom. We bless your holy name, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.